This is episode 14 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, July 19, 2011. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Oh, Karen, we started recording and then there's people talking in the background. You know, it was so quiet here before we started recording. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, this is the uh, this is what it's like now that we're off. Executive <laughs> directors about the world living in places. I don't know. You know? <laughs> it's a really weird well, chain we, of conversation. <laughs> well, we both work for really small organizations now, both of us. And, we do. And they don't have their own office but space. But we, we haven't recorded at the Software Freedom Law Center in a very, very long time. Well, that's true, but we've, we were used to record in your apartment, and we don't do that anymore. We still could. That's, well, I guess that's true. Why don't we go, should event, we go there right now? No. Okay. In any event, we're, we're, we're going to move away from recording here anyway, so if it's annoying now, don't worry, because we're going um, to actually play something else for you. That's right. We have a talk that I gave a few weeks ago, and this was a talk given to the uh, the Open Foam uh, Extend Conference, which is I forget what it was exactly called. It's I think it's called the Open Foam Workshop or something like that. Uh, and they are uh, a community around a GPL project that has they have challenges in their community uh, that they're facing. And uh, and I I tried to write a talk about. Uh, how similar communities had faced challenges like that and how they might apply some of those. A lot of the folks there were very new to being in a free software community. And so I hope it is of interest to those of you who listen to our show who probably know a lot more about this stuff already. Yeah, what I love about the talk is that it's... Are we going to close up afterwards? But I just going to say it's it's a pretty basic, basic talk. It's a good intro for people who, um, you know, who are looking to, to just sort of get comfortable with the field right now, but also it touches on some more advanced topics too. Um, so if you're, if you're someone who's, who's extremely involved in free and open source software and licensing issues, you might want to, I mean, this, this might be a little bit uh, basic for you. Right, or they may just want to skip the beginning. I'm going to put uh, time entries into the slides, so there'll be a link to the slides in the show notes, and uh, put at the bottom of each slide when you're supposed to go to the next slide. Mm-hmm. So you could actually use those time indexes to find the place where it gets interesting to you and then speed to that in the audio. So, without further ado, here's Bradley. So hopefully this mic is coming through okay for everybody. If you can't hear me, raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so I, I thank Eric for that introduction. I really thank him for inviting me to speak. Uh, it's not often I get to speak to a community that's already operating around a code base that's already under the license that, that uh, I've been involved with for the last 15 years. Uh, and I always want to hear from communities that are using software under GPL. Uh, and hear what the issues they face and what comes up for them. Uh, I obviously look at lots of different uh, communities that are licensed under GPL. So hopefully today I can give you some context and info about what happens elsewhere in the free software world. Uh, and perhaps you guys can give me some questions that you've encountered. I've left uh, plenty of time at the end uh, for questions. Ah, I, 
went back to my browser. Sorry about that. So um, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. Uh, so I, as Eric mentioned, I currently run an organization called uh, the Software Freedom Conservancy. And uh, I'm also on the board of directors of the Free Software Foundation, which is the organization responsible for the GPL. I previously worked for the FSF as its executive director uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, so uh, I've been involved with the GPL for a long time, and FSF is the organization that authored the license. So hopefully uh, my knowledge and experience about GPL will be helpful to you. Before I get to the details about issues related to the license itself, I want to tell a brief story about how we got to having free software. And in fact, when things started, software was actually free in the sense that I'm talking about, freedom, uh, by default, basically. You had a computer and you had terminals connected to that computer, and the users, who were mostly all developers, had access to the source code. In fact, until the advent of Fortran, uh, the software was in source form by default. You wrote the software assembler anyway, so there wasn't really a distinction between source code and binary uh, as we're very used to today. So this early age of computing, there was sort of software freedom by default. And you got these four essential freedoms that we talk about in the free software world automatically. These days, you actually have to look for them because most software you encounter uh, well, not so much anymore, but for a long time, most software you encountered didn't give you these freedoms. The first freedom that you ought to get, in, in, in our view, in the free software world, uh, when you get software, is the freedom to use it for any purpose that you can think of. So you should have the right to make use of the software any way that you normally would, and maybe ways that no one would have expected. That's something you should get automatically, and most software gives you this a little though, even various EULAs you'll see with proprietary software restricts you to certain areas of use. So even that freedom is somewhat eroded with uh, proprietary software, which is the opposite of free software. The second freedom uh, that you get, which should be uh, pretty obvious to a university audience, an academic audience like this, is the freedom to learn from the software and improve your own knowledge and modify and improve the software for your own use. So you should have the right to look at the source code and the ability to figure out how it works, and the ability to improve it if you find a bug or otherwise you have additions you want to make to it. The third freedom that you should always get is the freedom to copy and share the software. And one of the things we did very early in the free software world, well, I say we, but I was too young uh, to have been in the we at that point, uh, but very early on the thinkers of the free software movement said, well, we don't want to distinguish between commercial and non-commercial software sharing. So non-commercial software sharing is pretty obvious, the idea that you might give someone a copy of the software, they see it on your computer and they'd like a copy, or you otherwise share it with your friends, your students, your colleagues, and so forth. Commercial sharing is the concept of selling software, that you charge somebody to give them a copy. And free software has always never, has never made a distinction between these two types of sharing. You should be allowed to sell people software for a charge, and you should also be allowed to share it with them for no charge. Similarly, the, the last freedom that you get, the freedom to share your improved versions, again, this needs to be both commercial and non-commercial. Lots of people in software freedom communities share the software and share their improvements non-commercially. 
They make a patch and they post it to a mailing list or to a bug tracker, or otherwise make it available at no charge to other people working on the software. But there's also companies that are in the business of making improvements to software, and they sell their services and their time for doing those improvements, or they might just sell their modified version wholesale, or retail actually, uh, to a entity that wants to buy a copy of their modified or improved version. So these are the four ideas of software freedom, the four things that you ought to get if you actually have freedom in the use and improvement of your software. Now, as time went on from the very early days of computing, it, it, it ceased to be the case that you got those rights and privileges and what I would call inalienable rights to software by default. This idea of licensing was invented and it was invented. It didn't exist naturally as a, an artifact of software. It's something that the legal system has invented to surround software in a certain way. And the reason it's possible is because you can eventually, once you get technology advanced enough, separate the software from the physical computer. In the 1950s, when, the, when IBM sold you a computer, they, they sort of had to give you software by default. They, they really didn't have a reason to convince you to buy this giant piece of iron otherwise. So they put some software on it, which was almost an afterthought. It's, it's strange to think about that today, but really IBM started developing software as an afterthought after building these big machines. Said, well, what, how can we get somebody to buy this? Well, we have to give them some software. And the, the idea of licensing was, was an invention that came later that became part of the software industry after it had already come into existence. So a lot of people believe this guy invented software licensing. I'm quoting here from the letter to hobbyists, uh, open letter to hobbyists that Bill Gates wrote in 1974. And it's really the first time historically that somebody wrote down and said that it was somehow wrong to share software. And obviously we know that Bill Gates thinks it's wrong to help other people. Um, so he's arguing that, well, if you share software with your neighbor, you're, you're stealing from somebody else. And that's, the, that's what creates this concept of licensing. The idea that you can restrict someone in their use and modification and improvement of the software. And ultimately, uh, Bill Gates turns out to become very profitable doing this, primarily because he convinces IBM, a company that ultimately didn't really understand software, to instead of acquiring DOS from him and shipping it with their IBM PC, he licenses it to them, and Microsoft becomes the wealthy corporation that it is today. Now this problem had to be fixed, well in my view it had to be fixed, uh, because it was bad for culture, it was bad for society, and there's probably one person that we can credit for fixing this problem. Uh, and that's the guy I used to work for that I now sit on the FSF Board of Directors with, Richard Stallman. He came up with the idea of creating a movement to try and get rid or replace the proprietary software that existed. And the reason he came up with this is he spent this time in the academic computing environment uh, at MIT's AI lab and programming on those old types of machines that sort of came with software. And it was kind of a golden age of computing. So it was, it was the idea that, that, that software was treated much like other academic work. That you improved it and you shared it with other universities. And the software that was worked on the early PDPs were, was in fact shared in this way among universities. And it wasn't, didn't really have any licenses on it. It was just sent around from university to university. 
And this golden age of computing began to disappear with the advent of software licensing and, and other types of proprietary legal systems placed upon software. Because MIT really began to change. This is a photo of the strange thing they did. So, so on the, uh, whatever side you're on, the building that's being torn down, that's, or being rebuilt, that's the old AI lab at MIT. And next to it is an identical building. And they built a completely new building. They, they basically gutted all of the AI lab, moved everybody somewhere else, and then rebuilt it and left the identical building next to it. So there used to be these two twin buildings. Now there's this brand new building, this really old building. Very strange thing to do when they, when they uh, do that kind of work at universities. But what the AI lab had discovered was that they could start patenting their software, patenting their ideas. And that would make them a lot of money if they licensed that patent exclusively to some spin-off company that they would allow to license the software out into the world. And this is, uh, the best example of this is uh, RSA Data Security, which had an exclusive license for the RSA patent, uh, which was a patent held by MIT, and basically 15 years of cryptography work in, as far as deploying it into the, into the world was set back by RSA having complete control over that, and you couldn't implement RSA in any technology without paying a licensing fee, a very large licensing fee, to RSA data security, effectively MIT, which is sort of the opposite of what universities were created to do. They were supposed to put knowledge out there freely for everyone, not for some exclusive, uh, basically wholly owned subsidiary company that would be giving fees back to them. So uh, sitting there in the middle of MIT, RMS launches this thing called the GNU Project, which I think has probably changed the world in a lot of ways because you can now run a Unix-like operating system on pretty much any hardware you can buy on the open market, and it's completely free software from bottom to top, and is licensed under various free software licenses, including the GPL. And the question, I think, that's interesting for, for this audience operating on a code base under the GPL is how did GNU succeed? And a lot of it had to do with the way that it was licensed under the GNU General Public License, which is the license of, of OpenFilm that you are all using. Now, it, it uses a, a hack on the legal system to work. So when you look at most software, it's, it's done under contract. When you open that package, you, you agree to something called a shrink wrap license. It's this very strange concept that you can agree to a, agree to a contract by opening a package, but the courts have upheld this. I, I, it doesn't make much sense to me. But when you open that package of proprietary software, you're agreeing to a contract. You're agreeing to enter into a covenant with a company that shipped you that box. And that's the way most proprietary software works. And obviously this doesn't work for free software for a whole number of reasons. First of all, we don't want to create for somebody just because they want to share their software, something we want to encourage, to require them to get the other person to agree to some sort of contract. That, that really wouldn't work. And also, we, just, it's a side button, sorry about that. Um, we, we also don't want to uh, have a system that's based so carefully around US, copy, or US uh, contract law, because that's where, how most licenses are, uh, are, are done. I can actually go right slide. I will promise not to hit that side button again. So we need a system of software that works worldwide. And that is only possible, really, with a system of legal infrastructure that works around the world. Now, it turns out that copyright 
which also happens to cover software as well. So that's that package you get that you agree to the contract to, it turns out there's also a copyright license involved because the software is also copyrighted, possibly patented too, but that's a concept for another talk. And you can use the copyright system to find a way to encourage this freedom, software freedom sharing community aspect. And so because this copyright system is internationalized through this thing called the Berne Convention, it works all around the world relatively easily. And there are roughly two different ways that you can get done this idea uh, in using copyright. Now, this is a rough approximation. It's more of a spectrum than it is two choices. Uh, but for the purposes of this talk, I'll just separate, uh, separate into two choices. There's permissive licensing, and there's copyleft licensing. And both are actually designed to encourage these software freedoms, copying, sharing, modifying, distributing the software. Permissive licensing, the key aspect of it is that there is no legal requirement that when you improve the software and, sh and share it with someone else, that you must give them all the same rights and privileges that you have. You don't have to give them the source code. You can, in fact, take a permissively licensed program and turn it into proprietary software and put a EULA around it even and sell it to someone else uh, under proprietary terms. Now, the thing is, is that most people who do permissive licensed free software actually want people to share the software and improve it and operate in a free software community, but they don't use the legal system to enforce that particular fact. They use mostly social pressure to encourage uh, companies and individuals to share their software back. Uh, copyleft, by contrast, actually prevents creation of proprietary software versions by using the legal system, namely copyright law, to require it as part of the license. So the idea of share and share alike is actually embodied into the, the code, legal code, if you will, of GPL. So it's required by law that when you distribute to someone else, you give them all the rights and privileges that you had in the software when you got it. And if you fail to do so, you've committed copyright infringement. So that's the, the key difference between the license you guys are operating under, GPL, and permissive licensing. You, you have this legal requirement that when you redistribute modified versions, you give along with it all the source code and the right to copy, share, modify, and redistribute to anyone who receives it from you. Now, it's true that the permissive license folks, when they use this social pressure, it, it does in fact work. And in fact, in the copyleft world, when somebody fails to abide by the copyleft, social pressure is actually the first thing we go to. It's, it's not nice to go right to the legal system and start suing people for copyright infringement. Normally, we try to have a friendly conversation and use some amount of social pressure to encourage uh, compliance with the license. Effectively, I see the GPL as operating kind of like the US Constitution in the sense that it's an embodiment of the ideals of a culture. So the GPL is written out as this is the ideal of free software. This is what we're striving to do. This is what the rights, inalienable rights, that we want people using software to have. And the GPL is the legal code, the constitution of that idea. And ultimately, it's a detailed implementation of that concept of the four freedoms that I was talking about earlier. It's the legal implementation of the concept of the four freedoms of free software. 
Now, the thing is, is the GPL is not just this thing that works it, it, it on its own. It's, it's, a, it's in some sense a theory. It's an idea, of a way of doing something. Um, and it's a framework for how things ought to happen, or are encouraged to happen, I should say, in a software sharing community. And it turns out that most people, they learn about the GPL, they learn the basics that, oh, I have to share the source code and I have to share the software with other people when I improve it, uh, but I can make money from it, that's okay as long as I'm obeying uh, the license and the share and share alike idea. And generally they follow the spirit of that without having to get into the legal details. But um, like with any law that you might have or any set of rules you might have, people sometimes ignore the spirit and focus on the letter of the license. Uh, and don't actually uh, do, what, do what's encouraged more, they just do exactly what's required and it ends up sometimes skirting around uh, various issues. Uh, like any law, the GPL needs to be, or any legal system, the GPL needs to be enforced. I do a lot of GPL enforcement work. I have a whole other talk about how that works uh, if you ever want to find it on my website or something. Um, but most importantly, I think, to note is that the GPL can be manipulated. It can be used in ways that it kind of wasn't originally intended by the FSF. And that's happening more and more uh, in free software. I want to focus a little bit on how that happens in a few minutes. So one of the things that's really important to me is, is when we have a code base. I would like to see a community of people working around it, which is what I see here today. I see a group of people who are all interested in a particular code base and are using it, improving it, and doing things with it that uh, improve the society, improve the community. And it's not that you can build one of these things. I mean, nobody sat down and built your community, per se. Uh, it grows organically. Everybody gets in the pool when the water seems fine and starts doing stuff and starts hanging out and talking and um, enjoying the, the, the fine weather or whatever. Um, and and to, to foster that kind of community getting built, uh, you need a lot of diversity. You need lots of different ideas from different parts of the community who might look at things and problems differently. Uh, you need lots of different types of contributions. You can't have just one contributor controlling everything and saying this is what you're going to have and well there's nothing else there. And people need a certain amount, and I, I use this word with, with great trepidation, ownership. Uh, and I don't like the idea that software has owners per se, but they should have some sense of uh, uh, um, thanks for their contribution and knowledge that they have a stake, that they're a stakeholder uh, in the community. And the GPL can actually foster this kind of diversity. Um, and one of the ways it does it is that each contributor holds their own copyright. So when you make a patch to a GPL program, that's a copyrighted work under the legal system. You have the right to decide its licensing, generally speaking. Specifically speaking, because GPL covers derivative works, which your patch will be, you have to license it under GPL, but the copyright is still yours. So you can either keep it private because the copyright's yours and give it to no one, but if you want to give it out to the world, your only choice is to license it under GPL, but you retain the copyright. And that has an interesting side effect because it creates this commons where lots of people are stakeholders. So when you contribute a patch to a free software project under GPL, you become a stakeholder. It means that, for example, the other people, even if they wrote most of the code, they can't change the license to something else without your consent because you're a copyright holder now. You're part of that community. You're a stakeholder. You're an owner, actually, from the legal system's perspective 
excuse me, in that software. So this kind of group ownership of a code base, I think, is what allows new ideas to flourish and new contributions to happen. Because once people start to see others contributing and having some stake, uh, a stakeholdership, if that's a word, in the code base, others can come along and do the same thing. Now, the thing is, is that this concept doesn't always function. It can actually be corrupted. And the example I want to use uh, for the next uh, short part of the talk is, is the MySQL AB company, uh, who developed originally the MySQL software. Now, they did a weird thing. Uh, they made sure that the entire MySQL code base was held copyright by them. So any MySQL code you found uh, up until uh, recently, I'll talk about that in a minute, was copyrighted all by MySQL AB. And what they did was they said, well, we're going to release it out to the world under GPL. But because we're the single, solitary, only copyright holder in this program, we can also sell proprietary licenses. This is the interesting thing about copyright law that you can issue as many different licenses for your copyrights as you want if you are the sole copyright holder. So they issued one license out to the world under GPL, and then they would issue to other people a proprietary license. Now, the original argument for doing this is the way we fund our work. People who don't like the GPL can buy a license from us, and then we use that money to continue developing it, which we then release under GPL. And I was sort of sold on this idea originally because it made sense. It raises money for more GPL software in the world. The problem became that enforcing the GPL became their marketing. They hired people who, who were basically a title of salesperson who went around telling people that they were violating the GPL. Now, MySQL had this way of operating where they would tell people you were violating the GPL when they actually weren't. So they would convince people to buy proprietary licenses they didn't need. And at first I thought, well, that's sort of a nice in the wintertime thing. People are buying things they don't need. But it created this, this FUD, as we say, in the free software world, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about using the MySQL code base. Because people were like, well, what happens when MySQL AB knocks on my door and says I'm violating their copyright? It sort of turned out like the BSA. You know, it's like, oh, you know, are they going to come shake me down and tell me I'm not paying my license fees? And that really, eventually, I discovered that this is really a corruption of what GPL is supposed to be. Initially, I didn't think that was true, but, but after time, it became clear. It became even more clear when MySQL was bought by Sun. And actually, I looked, you know, being, being, I'm not really an optimist, but in this situation, I was really optimistic. Because I was like, oh, Sun's much more friendly to free software than MySQL AB was. It'll get better. And it actually kind of did get better for about 10 months there. And then Sun was bought by Oracle. So once they were bought by Oracle, then, you know, we know how Oracle is. Uh, so there was really no hope for that community. And of course, Oracle immediately snapped back to the original MySQL business model, although long term, I think their idea is just to kill MySQL because they won't be able to buy Oracle instead or use it as some sort of starter product. Like, oh, if you're, if you're a little tiny thing, you use our MySQL product. But if you want real databases, you buy Oracle. Um, and, and what happened as this whole thing shook out is people forked, as we say, the code base. They took it and made a separate version, uh, which you're allowed to do under GPL, because even though MySQL hold all the copyrights, you were licensed to copy under GPL. So if you want to go and operate under GPL, you're completely free to do so. And that's what many people did. And in fact, most of the thriving forks of MySQL aren't centered around 
a specific company. In fact, the most successful fork of MySQL is a product, uh, project called Drizzle, uh, which is contributed primarily by one consulting company, but there's a dozen or so others that have sprouted up that are contributing. They're making money from the code base by selling services and support and the usual free software and open source business models. Um, and it's basically a fork of the original MySQL code base. Now, the interesting thing is that it's not called MySQL. I, I tell you about Drizzle, lots of people have heard of MySQL, they haven't heard of Drizzle. Well, there's an interesting thing that's true about names, which is they, they're, they're not copyrighted. It drives me nuts when I see like somebody in the press say, say they say some, they get some catchphrase, and they're like, I'm gonna copyright that. Well, a lot of short phrases and names are not copyrightable under the US legal system. Uh, in fact, there's a, 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 so there's no ability to apply copyleft to this. This whole copyleft thing I've been talking about, share and share alike, doesn't apply to a name, because it can't, because it's not copyrightable. So the system you actually use for names is called trademarks in the United States and in most parts of the world. So the issue of a trademark is totally orthogonal to the issue of a copyrighted code base. Uh, and so it turns out that, especially in the US, whoever files the name first with the trademark office has control of the name with regard to a particular area. So you'll find, for example, with MySQL, MySQL AB uh, and then Sun, now Oracle, control the use of that name. So the Drizzle folks, they don't use that name. They, they can say things and it's allowed under trademark law to say this was originally based on the MySQL software because that doesn't cause confusion in the marketplace. Trademark law is focused around, is the consumer confused when they see a name? Do they think, oh, this is really the MySQL AD product, or the Oracle MySQL product? Strange to think about that. But if you say, ah, oh, this is Drizzle based on MySQL, then you're completely fine. So when you find forks of projects, when people change things, they usually end up changing the name. Now, I think this ultimately, um, doesn't matter that often. Because people find the good stuff in some sense, particularly developers, right? So, so people who are interested in a code base, they find who the real fork is. Like because I follow the MySQL community and its various forks, I just know Drizzle is the best one. I know the developers, I know who did the best work, I know where they all ended up. So generally speaking, the game matters not so much, really. And I think people get attached to names. And I've seen a lot of projects, particularly coming out of Oracle now, because Sun had this whole group of open source and free software projects they released, and there's lots of forking going on. You'll see the OpenOffice versus LibreOffice thing. You'll see Hudson versus Jenkins. There's dozens of these projects where, not dozens, but, but, but probably a dozen, where Oracle now controls them and people are forking and renaming them. And it's not such a big deal. People will follow where the best code is and where the best application is. So I want to open up for questions just a few minutes, but before I do, I, I sort of want to give, uh, I, I thought of this last night, I should give a prescription for the health of a software freedom community. And one of the first things I always recommend is do as much development, preferably all development in public. So any new code, put it into the main code base, wherever it lives, as soon as you can. Uh, and I know there's some tendency, especially if you're a researcher, you, you, you do some changes and you want to sort of hold it all together and then do it all and commit it when the paper comes out. And I see lots of academic communities that are based around a GPL code base and that happens a lot. Uh, I don't know your community that well to know if that goes on or not, but I've seen other communities where they're like, well, we're going to keep the changes and then we're going to wait until the paper's published. To the extent to which you can not do that, it's better. 
because it means that people can build on your work faster and, and people see what's going on. Uh, generally, uh, code dumps, or as we say in the free software, throwing it over the wall uh, is never really the best way to do it because it requires people who are living upstream from you to try to merge in your changes and maybe the code base drifted from the time when you sort of froze on it and were working in your branch. Uh, so it's really a lot better to do your development and improvements in public, push your commits nightly uh, rather than weekly if possible, and weekly rather than monthly if possible, so that people are seeing what you're working on and that it can get merged into the main code base. And I hope this is a, a point that resonates with this audience, but I see software as part of academic research and pushing forward ideas. So I don't really, I really hate it when I see a paper, uh, and this happens in uh, computer science is the field I know better as far as academics go, you'll see a computer science paper and they'll talk about software they wrote uh, that was pursuant to the research in the paper and they won't release the software. So uh, that's completely unverifiable results in my view. You haven't told me, if you're writing a paper about computer science, you haven't told me your methodology, you haven't shown me the code that actually did it, you just wrote up a paper about something you did that you're now keeping secret. That's not research, that's not publishing, when you're not publishing the code with it. When you're doing research, in my view, that, that's coupled with code, the code should come out there right alongside the research. Um, and finally, I, it, it, people want control. It's, it's human nature, you want control over the stuff you do. And there's a sense for a lot of people when they get involved with free software that they're gonna lose control of everything, that, that, that basically they won't have control anymore. Um, but I, I don't think it's, it's really there. I think control is an illusion anyway. And the, the, you'll find the more you're a stakeholder in a large community, you actually do have a lot of control. If you look at a lot of free software projects, there's a tremendous amount of power held by the core developers. You look at something like the Linux project, and there's five people that basically decide where Linux goes. Though they don't really have control of their code because they licensed it out there all under GPL. But because they know the code, because they're the original authors of it, because they're the ones contributing to it every day, they have a, a control in the community and authority in the community, even if they don't have exact control over the code base. Uh, so I, I hope people will take that to heart and, and put, your, put your changes upstream, make, make an upstream community that people can contribute to and improve together. Um, so I, I want to give a, uh, Erica told me that, that folks have a lot of questions about how GPL works in this community and this is probably the best URL to check out if you have questions about GPL. You can also find this just by net searching for GPL FAQ. Uh, you'll find that. It's probably the best document. There's also lots of things on the FSF's website and its affiliated GNU.org website that has plenty of interesting information. Uh, about uh, GPL and how it works. Um, here's some like the social media usual stuff. You can follow me. I have a podcast. This talk will probably end up as one of uh, our podcasts, uh, and you can hear that there. I want to thank Cloud Identica. I don't use Twitter because it's proprietary software. I don't know if free software is out. Um, so I use a completely free software system called Identica that's very similar to Twitter. And uh, I have a blog as well if you want to follow it. And with that, I will take as many questions as you guys can throw at me. I think the students have mics, so I'll defer to the students picking who asks. Hi, uh, yeah, uh, could you uh, comment a little bit about uh, whether verifications of coupling proprietary and open source software? Well, you have to comply with the license terms, obviously. 
Um, GPL is where it comes up the most. Obviously, the types of permissive license I was talking about, there's pretty much no requirements. Uh, most permissive licenses, the most they're going to require you is that you attribute properly the copyright holder who contributed to the project it came from. Uh, with uh, GPL software, you do have requirements you have to follow. Uh, and the question of coupling is a complicated one uh, because uh, it, it, who knows what that means, per se. Uh, certainly, it's true that if you just put some GPL software next to some proprietary software on the same CD, uh, that's, and actually the license talks about this, it calls it mere aggregation. Mere aggregation is absolutely permitted. In fact, you can get a you know, Fedora CD or a Debian CD or an Ubuntu CD, and it'll have tons of proprietary applications on it right alongside tons of other GPL ones. Uh, so that's very common. Now, the, the question you probably want the answer to, which is, what happens if I've modified it or made some plugins or all this sort of stuff? That, then you're entering the area of the question called derivative works. And derivative works of software are somewhat an undecided topic. And people love to be angry at me uh, because I won't tell them what is or is not a derivative work of software. Uh, it's not my fault, per se. Copyright law gives us this thing called derivative works. And the whole concept of copyleft was centered around the idea, well, let's use, uh, some people have called it a judo move on copyleft, let's say, or on copyright. And let's turn it all around and say, okay, we're going to give you all these rights that copyright otherwise restricts, because by default, copyright restricts your ability to copy, modify, and distribute software. Copyleft says, oh, I assert your right to do all those things. But if you do this thing under copyright law called making a derivative work, or adaptation, or there's various other words used, then you have to license it the same way. You have to license it under uh, a permission to copy, share, modify, and distribute. And the problem is, is that the borders of derivative work haven't been perfectly decided. And if you talk to a lawyer, they're going to tell you in different districts, uh, federal districts in the U.S., there's different tests for derivative works. And frankly, if you're, uh, so, so this is where I get glib and, and people start hating. Because what I often say is, well, if you're dancing around that edge anyway, from my point of view, I don't want to help you because my goal is to make more free software in the world. So I would say, if you release everything under GPL, you'll probably be just fine. Obviously, you don't want to do that. In which case, I say, go talk to a copyright lawyer and ask them this question. And if you can, find one who knows about GPL. And there's plenty of lawyers stumping around our community just dying for work to answer these kinds of questions. And they will help you figure out what the lines are and figure out how to keep people from like me saying you're violating the GPL. So you can get this help. It's available out there. You're going to have to pay for it. But from my point of view, that's okay. Because basically, if you want to make proprietary stuff surrounding and touching as closely as possible GPL stuff without violating the copyright law, then you should be talking to a lawyer and paying that lawyer for their time to answer that question. Now, now what happens is, is lawyers are afraid of change in, in a way that's really kind of disturbing. They do not want anything that makes them work hard. They do not, <laughs> I hope there's no lawyers in the audience. I, I can get away with this uh, in a non-legal audience. But they just, they basically don't want to have to do work. And when you show them something like GPL, that if they haven't seen it before, they've seen it before, it's actually okay. And a lot of lawyers have, and then it works out fine. If they haven't seen it before, they're going to look for every reason they can think of to refuse. Like in an academic environment, I, I had trouble when I was working on my master's thesis in computer science uh, because I was working on GPL software as part of my master's thesis and the IP council of the university decided that somehow I couldn't do this as a grad student working on my home computer on my thesis. Well, I fought that and won, 
but it was because it was new. And hopefully I set policy at the University of Cincinnati so that the next grad student who's working with GPL software won't have as much trouble as I did. So I think, I think that it's an education process uh, and understanding that, that what the lawyers are often saying is coming from fear. It's basically fear of the unknown because lawyers are basically risk managers. Their job is for whatever organization their client is, they're trying to manage risk of something bad, like uh, of preventing something bad happening or mitigating if it does. And so they are going to say no by default because that's the least risky thing to do. But their job is to manage risk, right? So if you have any management authority or communication with the management of the organization, their bosses can say to them, well, I understand it's risky, but I want to do it anyway. Um, and I think a lot of organizations, lawyers have gotten a tremendous amount of power because people believe they know some magic, like, like the, as, if, as if they went to Hogwarts to, lo to law school, right? That they, they can somehow cast a spell and make something like they say, if it's all, it's all hogwash. They just studied a particular set of rules and are trying to apply them in the least risk, in the most risk-averse way. Uh, and it's not magic, and you should challenge them on it. That's, that's my best advice, is, is argue with lawyers a lot. And they're good at arguing, so you have to get good too. And that's what I've done, is just get good at arguing, good at, good at rhetoric. I want to move on to the next question, though, so I make sure I get as many questions are out there. I see the mics are just idle, so there's one. I have a question regarding Documenting GPL software, which should be a software itself. Yeah. Um, About, do sorry, documenting? Documenting, yeah. yeah. I've just read that the uh, free documentation license is, in under some conditions, incompatible with uh, GPL software. Can you comment on that? Okay, so, um, uh, so, uh, so the, the GFDL is a complicated license. Um, and uh, it's tough for me to answer this question because I, I, I'm on the board of directors of FSEF, but I, I disagree a little bit with, with FSEF policy on this, so I'm trying to be, to be diplomatic. Um, but I, I think, I think the, the original concept of the two licenses was that you wouldn't intertwine code and documentation. Um, and to this, Donald Knuth gets very upset because this whole concept of literate programming, that the, the documentation and code should be together, uh, doesn't work there. Uh, so, so when you bring, it is true the two licenses are incompatible in a copyright sense. So you can't bring GPL stuff into GFDL stuff and vice versa. Uh, what I normally do when communities are worried about that, I say, just dual license the documentation. Make the documentation both GFDL or GPL. So it can be both at the same time, which means you can share things between the documentation and the code. Now, if you're coming from the code side, where you have only GPL, bring that into the documentation, that's complicated. Now, there is this concept of fair use and other types of things, where if you're only quoting short snippets of code, that's not actually a copyright infringement. Even if you don't GPL the code when you bring it into the documentation, you're only bringing in short snippets, that's usually fine under copyright law. Now, it's fuzzy. What's fair use and what's not is one of these questions that lawyers debate on how many fair use angels dance on heads of pins and all these sorts of things. But generally speaking, if you're just taking small snippets of code and documentation, it's all just fine. Um, but you can also dual license, and you'll see a lot of wikis, they're dual license GPL or GFDL. So it's sort of, it's sort of either or license, and then there's a meta license, which is the choice between the two. Um, and that's, that's what I normally recommend to people who are really stuck in that situation, because it's really sort of the only way to, to satisfy both at the same time. Uh, I would like to follow up on uh, a earlier question. Yeah. question. Um, so, if it is not about uh, creating proprietary software, but to couple the proprietary software to GPL software, can you give some advice on that? For example, you would like to use uh, 
uh, some proprietary software to control the um, GPL software. I mean, not control, I mean, control in the sense, in the sense of um, uh, software. Not, but, not in the sub-license well, so, so, so this, is, this is the problem with questions like this, right? So, so you use two verbs there. You, use, you want to couple and you want to control. And um, I, don't know, I don't know what, what that could possibly mean, right, in some sense. It's not that I'm being, I'm being disingenuous. It's just that, it's just that it, I can imagine things that uh, are coupled and or control the GPL software that are clearly and obviously derivative works. I can also imagine things that people might call coupling and controlling that are clearly and obviously not derivative works of the GPL software. What I really encourage people to do with these is it a derivative work and does the GPL apply to my code questions is to actually write out the fact pattern, exactly what's going to happen, and sit down with a copyright lawyer and say, this is what we're going to do. Do I infringe this person's copyright, or yes or no? Um, because it's the only way to figure it out is, is with an actual fact pattern. Uh, because because this, is, this is how the legal system works. It's, it's a weird system we have. I know the U.S. legal system better than others. Uh, others are similar but, but have differences. Uh, but in the U.S. legal system, it's all based on this concept of precedent, right? So what you have is things like the Duke Nukem case, which is one of the classic cases in copyright law, where uh, basically the, the, the fact pattern of the case works this way. The Duke Nukem game, which people might be familiar with, it's long ago now. It's supposed to be a new one coming out or something weird like that. Um, but uh, like 20 years later, 15 years later. Um, but uh, basically a group of uh, companies, or a company actually, developed a bunch of maps, which were just map files for Duke Nukem. Duke Nukem and they sold this separately and were selling it for their own money and for as proprietary maps, they could just drop in, you dropped it into a directory for the Duke Nukem game, and voila, you have new adventures for Duke Nukem, whatever that might be. Um, and ultimately the courts decided that the map, even though the map, they weren't distributing Duke Nukem, they didn't have any literal copying of any material from Duke Nukem, they just used the same map file format, but because those maps only worked with Duke Nukem and they clearly were, were based on Duke Nukem in the sense of, of that's, that's what they were made for. Uh, the courts decided that those maps were derivative works, right? So that's a fact pattern, right, that the courts have decided on. And the problem is, is, is it's really difficult to get an answer on these questions without presenting a fact pattern to a lawyer who studied not just the Duke Nukem case, but the dozens of other cases, many of which I'm not familiar with, and say, well, which set of, our new set of facts that we're creating, how, how do they relate to the facts that are already there? Uh, in the cases that have already been decided. And they figure out which one's the closest. And in some courts actually give tests. There's this abstraction filtration test in one of the circuits, and there's various other tests of derivativeness. Um, they apply these tests that courts have come up with, because sometimes courts come up with general answers, which is, we applied this test to figure out this was a derivative work, and then you can use that test to do fact patterns. So basically, you need somebody to sit down and do that work. And it's, it's arduous work. And so you're probably looking at paying a copyright attorney like for 20 to 40 hours of their time to do this. Uh, but in the end, you have an answer. You have an opinion letter that you can then carry. And when somebody like me comes along, well, I wouldn't be enforcing an open phone's copyrights. But somebody has the copyrights in open phone. They might come along and say, hey, you're buying the GPL. You exhibit this opinion letter from your attorney. And then you just go along your way. Um, and they're probably not going to do that well in court because your attorney is going to show up and their attorney is going to show up and they probably won't see you. So I, I know that that's a, um, a rather revolting way of having to deal with this problem. Um, my, my glib answer is always, as well, just GPL everything, you'll be fine. Um, obviously, you don't want to do that. So then you have to enter this quirky, this quirky and, and messy quagmire to get the answer that you want.
What about derivative works where one of the authors cannot um, GPL the software because they work with the federal government? Well, okay, federal government can't hold copyright, as it turns out. So the federal government can comply with the GPL very easily because it doesn't hold copyright at all. Um, now, what you actually are asking is, they work for a contractor to the federal government, which does hold copyright, and they've entered some other contract with the federal government that says they won't distribute the software or otherwise put it somewhere. Uh, now, the important thing to note in a couple, of, in many of these cases, is the GPL doesn't mandatorily require that you release your software. What it actually says is, when you engage in the act of distributing, you must do various things, including giving all the source code, complete and corresponding, including any source code to derivative works. So if it turns out, so it, let's, let's make up a fact pattern, right? So you've got a, a gover government agency contracts to a contractor, makes some agreement, and they say, well, we're gonna, get, we're gonna develop the software on site for the government agency, and then you'll have the software. Well, that software never got distributed to anyone. The government has it because it's on their computers. The contractor had access to it to improve it. So if it's never distributed, there's basically no real GPL requirement there. I mean, technically speaking, you have to make sure the copyright notices are correct, but I mean, that's easy to do. But if you never actually, if the contractor doesn't want to go out and give it to someone else, some third party, uh, then if they don't want to do that, then there's basically no GPL requirements kicking in that you have to adhere to. Um, now, the contractor might be bound in a weird way. And by that I mean, if the contractor can't simultaneously follow the agreements of the, they made with the government agency and at the same time meet the requirements of GPL, they're, actually the GPL prohibits you from distributing. Uh, there's this clause in GPL which we often call the give my software liberty or give it death clause, which basically is originally designed to deal with patent judgments and various other types of things that might somehow restrict your ability to distribute, right? It's sort of getting back to this other fellow's question about, well, what happens when another legal system interacts and says you can't do what the GPL says? In those situations, GPL basically says freeze, don't distribute to anyone. You cannot distribute. You basically just have to keep it on your own systems and not distribute it any further. Uh, but, of course, if you were in a situation where you were developing it in-house, that doesn't actually matter that much to you because you never wanted to distribute it in the first place. So I think there's lots of fact patterns that you're talking about that will actually just work out just fine. It's possible to imagine one where it's really difficult to uh, do the development in GPL software because of some government contract that you have to agree to. These things like ITAR might be part of them. I think that's an education process on the pitching side. It's, it's a, it, it, before you, the contract sign, you talk through what technologies you're going to use and say, we've got GPL stuff in here. Here's the requirements. Let's have all the lawyers sit down in a room with us uh, and figure out if this is going to be all right and make sure that it is uh, and just do it ahead of time. I think the dangers come up when somebody brings in some GPL software in the middle of a contract and didn't specify that it was going to be there in the beginning, and then all hell breaks loose. Uh, but if you talk about it ahead of time with whatever agency you're working for, or even if it's, if it's, if it's non-governmental, if it's just two companies, if you have the conversation up front that GPL software is going to be used, I think a lot of these problems sort of shake out in, in the negotiation uh, and get properly written into the contract. Um, following up on this question, um, how about a very large company which is uh, raised worldwide does uh, transferring from one site to the, another site be considered as uh, distributing or sharing the software? Um, 
that's a very complicated question that I'm, I have six minutes left. I'm not going to be able to answer it in six minutes. Um, but uh, so, so, so one thing to look at uh, is look at, look at how GPLv3 was modified to deal with this from GPLv2. So GPLv3 talks about these things called propagate and convey, which are two different types of distribution. Um, conveyance is sort of what we traditionally thought of as distribution under GPLv2, where you actually convey, to use the verb, a copy to someone else. Propagation is sort of these secondary distributions that happen uh, over situations where you have like wholly owned subsidiaries and other types of things and contractors getting access to the software. Under V3, that's generally called propagation. Uh, V3 defines different rules for propagate and convey, and the rules for propagate are much easier to meet. So in a lot of situations, I don't know your situation exactly, so I can't comment for sure on it, but likely that situation is a propagation situation, which the requirements are much less than a convey situation. There's also simulator because there's a paper that a lawyer wrote, he presented at a Linux world a couple of years ago, where he actually did an analysis of dozens of situations like this and sort of came out to conclusions. And I sat there in his talk, you know, I, I, I sit in his GPL talks like waiting for him to say something wrong so I can like jump up and say you're saying something wrong. Um, and every single and situation he analyzed, I was like, well, that looks like it will come out to me too. Uh, so his paper might be of interest to you because he actually went through the arduous work of looking at different situations like that and trying to come to it. And I, I have his, his contact details and stuff in my file, so I can give that to you later. Okay, well, uh, let's give... Uh, uh, a round of applause for a wonderful talk. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed that. I listened to it before, so we're talking about it now after I've listened to it, not right now. I don't feel like I should say anything because people have just been listening to me for such a long period of time. It's a really big room. How many people were there? Uh, I didn't count the room exactly. There were somewhere between 200 and 300 people at the conference. So, uh, so they, everybody who was at the conference was there because it was the, the second day keynote. So mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of people. And there, a lot of them were very new to stuff uh, and, and just learning about it. In fact, after the talk was over, I went out into the hallway. And, and I, I feel bad for whoever had their talk scheduled after mine because I was surrounded by a large group of people. Oh, wow. Because they, 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 they had never had anybody to ask. They, they, they exist in this community. I mean, they're probably, many of them probably use GNU Linux systems, but they've never been involved in a free software community, uh, any of them, as far as I could tell. And therefore, they, this is the first opportunity to ask somebody about what, how the GPL works. Got a lot of those really basic questions of, when you do this, is that what you have to do for the GPL and all that sort of oh, thing? Wow. And, and, and what is an offer for source and when, when can you do that? Those kinds of really basic GPL hmm. questions because they never encountered them before. Uh, they, a lot of questions about asking delays and releases and do I have to publish as soon as I make a change? Uh, because yeah. uh, a lot of what they're doing with this code base is new research work. And so they want to withhold the code until the paper comes out. Oh, you talk about that least, in your, And I mentioned yeah. that in the, in the talk. And so everybody wants to make sure they're allowed to do that under GPL. Of course, they are. Uh, not that I like it, <laughs> but they, the, the GPL right, does It's not a violation. Yeah, it's not a violation um, because they all want to do that. They all want to keep. And they also have cust the ones who are commercially involved want to have customers that have on-site modifications. Um, so I have a question for you. Okay. What was that picture of, uh, of Bill Gates arrested? What, what is that from? Well, that's a pretty famous picture. The, 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 actually, the person who introduced me to that picture is Dave Turner. 
uh, of uh, used to work for the FSF. Now he works for Open Plan. Um, he he used to use that in his talks. I actually got it completely from him. He deserves all the credit for it. Uh, and there was this period of time when they were in Nevada. It's actually well depicted in. Um, he looks pretty young. Yeah, in the movie Pirates of Silicon Valley, which was a made-for-TV movie about Apple and Microsoft, uh, the crime that he committed is depicted. He went to some construction place and drove around the trucks for fun or something like that hmm. and, uh, and, was, and was caught doing it. So it was a driving related. Yes. I think he had no license and he was had broken in. And was oh, no driving. license. Yeah, I think he had no license, as I recall. It was, yeah, it was driving. The around. picture is great. He just looks, you know, he's just got that smile. Yeah, that's that's what Bill Gates looks like. So, uh, <laughs> still, <laughs> he's much older, but he looks like that. So, so yeah, if, if folks, I, I, that's the movie I write. It's, it's, one of, it's actually one of the first docudramas ever made. Huh? Pirates of Silicon Valley. It was made in the in the late 90s. I've never uh, seen for it. TV. Is it's it easy TV. to get a hold of? I don't know. It was a made-for-TV movie. I literally saw it on TV when it aired. Oh, wow. Um, I remember because I was in grad school at the time, and I was taking this American Sign Language class. Uh, uh, some of our listeners may already know that I spent time in graduate school just uh, randomly taking classes, which when the computer science department found out about that, that I was just randomly taking classes in other departments, they were a little upset at me. Not, why not just why would they be upset at you? Because you're not really allowed to do that when you're in scholarship for computer science for grad school. You're supposed to be taking classes in the department pursuant to your And master, you can't take any other classes? That doesn't well, sound right. You can. That's the point. Uh, they frown upon it. Well, it's it's more that I was taking classes that clearly didn't relate to my thesis work. Like, if you want to go to the math department and take something that relates to your thesis work, they encourage that, in fact. But the thing is, you could register for any class on the campus. Uh, so I just registered for American Sign Language, so I wanted to take it. And I registered for Spanish again, because I didn't take it Spanish Were you all. teaching at the same time? No. No, okay. No, no, I'm sorry, well, not that same time, but that same, this is the same period when I, that same period of my life is when I taught high school, if that's what you're Oh, asking. no, 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 I was actually asking if part of your grad program was teaching. No, I did not. Because I was going to say so, then they got their money's worth out of you. <laughs> no, they didn't actually, because um, my, my funding job for grad school was actually a sysadmin job, uh, and that's because I had all the sysadmin skills by then already, because uh, I had been a sysadmin for a few years before I went to grad school, but it was a sysadmin job where they had Microsoft machines, and then I finally decided I couldn't do it anymore. And, it and was, you quit. And I, and I quit. Hmm. Pretty much because there was so much proprietary software that I had to sysadmin and I got sick of it and I couldn't take it anymore. So I quit. Hmm. Um, because they ran, they ran uh, it was for the geography department and they ran the uh, ArcView, which is this proprietary geography program. That's the main thing they did. Hmm. Wait, so how does so this anyway, relate to American Sign Language? So I used to American Sign Language because uh, this class I was taking, because this woman had seen Pirates of Silicon Valley and she came up to me and she said, you're in computers, right? And I said, yeah, I, I'm involved with, with uh, I'm in computer science and I'm involved with, uh, with this free software thing and she said and and she said yeah i heard you talk about that free software thing with your friend because one of my other friends involved with free software was taking the class as well as it turned out um she said um oh i think i know what you guys are talking about because i watched that that pirates of silicon valley movie and they were they're they're both such jerks like i can't believe (laughs) i use any of their software microsoft or apple (laughs) that's great and so uh, so that's what made me that's actually what made the movie stick in my mind so much was i had watched it and sort of been like this is is this even a real depiction it's this docudrama thing whatever it's a little overblown but then that woman coming up to me and saying that it had basically convinced her that maybe free software had a point because (laughs) Because these guys seem to just like corporate jerks you know ah she didn't use the word jerks i'm I'm editing oh she didn't use the word jerks. she used the word that i'm not saying oh but i was i was actually going to say that some people who write really awesome 
free software are also not the most personable. Right. I'm not naming any true. names. But she actually used a, a, a phallic word that, that people often use instead of jerk. Okay. Um, but I, don't know, I won't say that. All that's right. what she called them. Don't she say called it. them that. I'm just. So, um, yeah, so, so that's what made that movie stick in my mind. But that, the, 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 the crime that Bill Gates committed is depicted in that movie. So okay. it's the only time I've ever seen it depicted. Uh, it's certainly not, I mean, there was no film of it for the, no, they weren't filming a documentary about him at the time. So there's <laughs> no real film of it, but it's the only time I've ever seen it really sort of talked about in the media in hmm. any great degree. Um, other than the websites you go to that tell you where that picture's from, which I guess explained it as well. Right. So I'll try to find one of those and link in the show notes if I can. If I can find anything about Pirates of Silicon Valley, I guess I'll link to that in the show notes. I'm curious too. about it. It's now. like some TV movie, you know. So, so who knows? Maybe it's not, maybe it's lost. I don't think it's lost. It must be somewhere. Someone has. It's I'm sure the director has, has a copy or something. <laughs> um, the funniest scene is uh, this is spoiler alert um, when uh, when they have, they have this meeting that apparently never really happened between Bill Gates and uh, and Steve Jobs. Uh, and the Steve Jobs guy completely overacting says, what is this I hear about you writing something called Windows? <laughs> it was so bad. It's just like you just started laughing at the scene. It's you great. Saw, yes, yeah. so, anyway. Anyway. Um, I guess we'll have to find, see if we can find the movie and find clips from it. Yeah. <laughs> but Okay. Well, uh, I hope folks enjoyed the talk. And so we'll hopefully Thanks have. for providing it, brother. Yep. Uh, it's no problem. I try to record most of my talks. We're, we're going to conferences soon. I'm going to hopefully bring the microphone if they let me on the plane with it. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll get some recordings of talks so we can be late. I mean, this is really because we want to be lazy and then we just record talks and we don't have to do much work for the audience. Don't too. tell our secret. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious to people, especially after I, I this collaboration good, summit with the whole good, track. I think it's a good mix-up of things, though, is the, is the thing. I mean, we've recorded a lot of these, mm-hmm. and there are, you know... I mean, it's not that there are only so many topics. It seems like there is an infinite amount of things that we can talk about, but sometimes it's nice to do something different. Well, it's definitely not infinite. Well, that's certainly true. But, um, but uh, I think... I, the, one of the reasons I like doing the talk recordings is I think you and I are very lucky that we get to go to a lot of conferences. Basically, it's part of our jobs mm-hmm. in free software. And I meet a lot of people in IRC who who are really jealous. And, and I know how that feels because I used I remember when I was in grad school and wanted to go to free software conferences, I would have to save up every year to go to the Pearl Conference in those days, which later became OzCon. I would save up and we used to sleep in the car and, and all these things to try and save. we get a rental car because getting a rental car is cheaper than getting a hotel room. So we get a rental car right. and we'd sleep in the rental car. I did that multiple years. I slept in rental cars, at least the last night uh, before the flight. So um, so I know what it's like to want to go to free software conferences and not be able to. So I sort of feel like that's a way we can record these talks and then people can at least feel a little bit like they were at the conference. Yeah. It's not the same thing exactly, but it's No, something. but it's also more polished material, too. I mean, it's a complete you know, thought that someone has worked on and presented. So that's pretty interesting, too. So we'll try to get some recordings of talks uh, at the conference. We can't promise anything, but we're gonna, I'm going to bring the microphone and hopefully get a try, get a try at it anyway. Great. Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of halfbakemedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Freedom and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to oddcast at faif.us.
sorry. I was not going to say anything. You're stealing from us! Steve, we're not stealing from you. So don't tell me that. What the hell are you doing then? What is this that I keep hearing about you developing this? What do you call it? Windows? To compete with us? I'm not doing anything against you, Steve. Don't give me that crap! You're pirating the software off our Mac prototypes! I trusted you! 